All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 20th Century Movie Club. My name is Dana, and before we get started, I want to acknowledge that my regular co-host, Mike, is not going to be part of this episode today, and Mike was gracious enough. I reached out to him and said, listen, I'm going to do an impromptu episode of this show with a friend of mine, and it's kind of a last-minute thing, and I wanted to make sure that you were going to be okay with it. Mike, I appreciate you texting me back and saying, no problem, do what you got to do. So again, Mike, you're going to be missed on this episode, but you're definitely back for volume 13, which we're going to record next week. So for this episode, I want to introduce my friend, Kristen Oldenburg. Kristen, how are you today? I'm great, Dana. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you on here. Now, I think in the interest of full disclosure, I think we should just let the listeners know how we met, which was only, what, about a month ago? Probably, yeah. Probably about a month. We were both at a restaurant. I overheard you talking. I don't know you. I didn't know you, but I overheard you talking about a particular movie. And that's really sometimes all it takes to get my ears to perk up, especially the movie, which I'm not going to mention right now, the movie you were talking about. I had no choice but to sort of interrupt the conversation and just say to you, isn't that an amazing film? Isn't that the best? That was one of the best. And I just sort of started gushing over the movie and we just sort of struck up a conversation and I started talking to you about the podcast and you started listening and I said, well, you know what? Let's do an episode of the 20th Century Movie Club and, and here we are. So welcome. Thank you so much. And yes, you did. And I was very taken back by the fact that you even recognized the movie I was talking about because really most people don't. So that was nice. It felt really good to be able to have a conversation with somebody that is on the same page with that kind of movie. So that was cool. I really appreciated that. If you're a new listener to the show, what we do is we we recommend movies that were released before the year 2000. And in keeping with tradition on the 20th Century Movie Club, I always let our special guest make the first selection of the day. So, Kristen, what is your first movie for volume 12 of the 20th Century Movie Club? Well, I am from a suburb of Chicago. I grew up just outside of Chicago in a uh, suburb called LaGrange Park and moved here to Florida not that long ago, about almost four years ago now, three and a half, four years. And the movie that I want to recommend for our first movie of the evening will be the suburban movie, which reminds me so much in a lot of ways of the block that I grew up on, which was a cul-de-sac block with a crazy neighbor down the street. And the movie I want to recommend this evening is The Burbs, 1989. American comedy horror film, which is one of my favorite genres, is comedy horror or, I guess, cheesy horror, if you will. But this is more of a comedy, I would say, than a horror. And it is rated PG, which for me, growing up, a PG movie in the 80s, is okay for any child to watch with or without parental guidance, really. So (laughs) I saw this movie for the first time when I was probably 10 years old, 9, 10, walked to Blockbuster Video with my uncle because I'm staying at my grandparents' house for the weekend. And it was a really fun experience doing things like that because I always got to watch the movies that weren't cartoon movies that my parents didn't necessarily let me rent or watch. But The Burbs, which is probably my favorite of all time. And it was written by Dana Olson, Mr. Dana Olson, which until meeting you, Dana, I probably thought for years that that was not a, a, a man that wrote it. I probably thought it was some... <laughs> what a, no wonder I love this movie so much. This lady wrote the best movie. And it is my favorite. It was directed directed by Joe Dante, who also directed some of my other absolute favorite 80s movies. Gremlins, for instance, Twilight Zone, the movie, which is one of my favorites as well, um, which had multiple directors for different segments, but he had directed one of those. And um, he also is unaccredited rock and roll high school director, which is an excellent movie. If you haven't seen that one, it's definitely something interesting. But the whole movie was filmed directly on the back lot of Universal Studios in a (laughs) cul-de-sac, like on the neighborhood where Leave it to Beaver was filmed and The Munsters actually was filmed, which was really neat. And for me, that part of the movie really brings you to a place of suburban America that you don't always get with movies. The whole thing was shot there, except for the beginning. And the beginning of that movie is one of the neatest, you know, intros to any movie that I've ever seen. And it starts out with your traditional Universal Studios, the globe and the logo. You see the logo go by like any other movie that you'd see in a theater. And you zoom in like Google Earth to this neighborhood and it's nighttime. And the music, in my opinion, in this movie has its very own role, like a character, because it really leads you into the setting 
of what you're about to be a part of. And it's like riding in a neighborhood in Krampus, dark, evil sleigh and the demonic feeling of the chords of the music where it's the organ and it's deep and dark. And now you're on the block of Mayfield Place, the house that you zoom in on first. Looks like Frankenstein's monster is being brought to life in the basement with the electricity coming out of the basement. And the neighbor, which is played by Tom Hanks, Ray Peterson, and he walks out in the middle of the night to check out what's going on. And as he walks out, through his yard and his robe and the, the noise and the ruckus and the Frankenstein's monster sounds coming from the basement. He steps one foot over from his perfectly mowed lawn, dirt patch of the lot that is the Klopex house. You know, his new neighbor, and he puts one foot over into the dirt, and the wind blows his whole <laughs> robe back, and he is just taken back. Like, it is something that really sets a tone for not only the comedy part, but it's going to be a little scary too, perhaps. And as soon as he pulls his foot back, the wind stops. And I love that beginning of the movie because what it really does for me is it takes me to that moment and it puts me on that block. And the whole time you really watch this movie, you do feel like you could be kicking back on your front porch swing and watching it all unfold on a block. If you've ever grown up in suburbia or, I mean, any place that you just sit back and sometimes just people watch. And I'm a people watcher. I love to people watch. I do. And this movie is like people watching, but you get to be firsthand right there. The trip that they take and the, the things that they do in this movie. I mean, they really do some interesting things as far as their neighbors that they're unsure of. These people that move in and now all the, all the crows or buzzards <laughs> are out and they don't mow their lawn and everything's dead and dying. I really just, I just love that. So I really do feel the need to mention, however, that the thing about this episode, I am a big Twilight Zone fan and I know I mentioned Twilight Zone, the movie, which one of those clips was directed by Joe, Joe Dante. And I, and I love that. I love that movie. I love the fact that he, I think he's an excellent director, but I do want to say that there's a really fun little Easter egg in this movie that I need to mention. And that is the fact that he did direct Gremlins. And in the, one of the opening scenes when they're having breakfast in the beginning of this movie, the Burbs, there is a Gremlins cereal box in the background on the counter. I didn't know that. Yeah. No, it's super cool. And you could miss it if you don't know exactly where to look and it's happening. I, I should look up the time and and I should do that. But the cereal box is on the counter and it's right at the beginning of the film and it's very brief and it's got like a blue background and there's a little gremlin. I mean, it's so cool. So I just love that. I love that that's like a little hidden gem that if you really truly know that it's there, you will see it. And I have seen that movie, The Burbs, I've probably seen hundreds of times. It was a movie that growing up, I used to watch like as a bedtime story almost every night just because of the, the comfort that it gave me, that suburban, that comfort, but that I loved the fact that it had this darkness. Because at the end of the day, doesn't every block kind of have a darkness? Isn't there always a house somewhere that you go, gosh, who lives there? I wonder, you know, the Klopex. In fact, my own block growing up, we had someone and they were, we always called them the Klopex. <laughs> just because it was, they were the Klopex, you know? What are they doing? What are the Klopex doing? I mean, it was just a common household expression in my home growing up. And so for me, that movie had that tie to growing up. There's a great cast of characters in this movie. And some of my favorite actors and actresses ever. Carrie Fisher plays Carol Peterson, who is Ray Peterson's wife. And she plays this loving, caring, she just wants everyone to be happy. She does. I mean, she just wants to have a great vacation with her husband, who probably works all these long hours day after day, and he's on vacation. And what does he want to do on vacation? He just wants to hang out in his bathrobe, in his backyard, doing nothing. With the tools. <laughs> with his tools. With his tools. And gosh, and, and that's a great scene, really, when, I mean, when his neighbor, Art, which is played by Rick Duckerman and Art is this charismatic, a little bit out there in the way that he, you know, he has a different way of looking at the neighborhood, a different way of looking at things. And he's funny and he wants to eat all the time and 
after he's finished with <laughs> breakfast, when is lunch? And when are we going to get a sandwich? Yeah. And Ray Peterson, you know, is trying to show him his tools. Oh, look at these tools that my father-in-law gave me for Christmas. Aren't these cool? And he's wondering, when are we getting our sandwich? What's for lunch? You want to go down to the deli and get a sandwich? Mm -hmm. Like after he just got done accidentally eating dog food out of the bowl <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, he's just a, he's a very, I, I guess, how would you explain someone like that? I guess it would be focused on the immediate gratification. We he will. wants to be gratified right now. What are we doing right now? What's happening today, right now? And so, of course, that's what sparks the whole basic plot of the movie is the suspicion of these Klopeks. Well, who are they? What are they? Who are they doing? What are they doing? Not who necessarily, but maybe. I don't know. But what are they doing? You know, what's going on with these crazy neighbors? And it's that's how the movie pretty much kicks off. But what I love about it is that you are introduced to a, a group of characters in the beginning that you you fall in love with right away. I fell in love with right away all of these characters. Corey Feldman plays Ricky the neighbor. And, you know, he is this teenage kid. His job for the summer is to paint the house and listen to rock and roll music. And of course, in the opening scene, he's getting ready to do that. He's got the paint can out. And I love the sound that he that the paint can makes when he's got the brush in it. And you just know that that's like this kid is ready to paint the house and have a good time this summer. Who knows where his parents are? You never meet them. They're not in the movie. And he's looking over at the neighbor and who is an, an excellent actor and, and character in this movie, and that's Bruce Dern. And Bruce Dern plays the most perfect, high-strung, <laughs> just military, high-strung guy with the most smoking hot blonde who is played by Wendy Shaw. And I love her for that role. She is perfect. She's the perfect representation of a subtle sexuality that is probably every teenage kid next door sees this, you know, beautiful, put together young mom out in the garden. And you immediately know, based on not only the comment from Mr. Rumsfield about the kid next door being a meatball, but you immediately recognize that Corey Feldman's character is this teenage kid. And he is a meatball because, you know, he makes some remark about the beautiful girl next door and the, the mom next door. And you can tell from the very beginning that there's this dynamic within the neighborhood. And it's just fun. It's a fun movie. It starts out fun. And really throughout the whole film, you have this feeling of sitting there watching it unfold right before you. And I loved that growing up. I always felt that that movie was something that connected me no matter where I went in my life. And I've moved around quite a bit. And no matter where I went, that movie was something I could always watch and feel at home. So, Dana, tell me, have you ever seen the movie The Burbs? Well, I think the answer to that question is, of course, yes. Because this was the movie you were talking about. <laughs> I was like 99% sure when I asked you to come on to the 20th Century Movie Club that this was going to be one of your recommendations because I kind of told you, hey, you know what? Interestingly enough, haven't recommended that one yet. So, yes, absolutely, I've seen it. And... There's really not much more that I can say that you haven't already said, but I just want to touch on a couple things. One, you mentioned Tom Hanks plays this great every man, the suburban dad, the suburban suburban neighbor who, yeah, you're right. He probably works beyond a 40-hour work week, and this is his vacation. All he wants to do is relax. <laughs> and that's not going to happen because of his neighbor, Art. And that Art is by far my favorite character in the movie. And one of the things I really liked about Art, it was he's one of those know-it-alls who doesn't really know anything. I just, I crack up so much and, and it's not getting into spoilers, but there's a part where they want to cut the electricity. I'll just say that. And, and Art just shows up completely dressed like a, like a utility worker. He's like, I can take care of everything with one clip of the snips. And of course, things don't go right. He genuinely believes everything he's saying. And that's what I love about his character. And he, you're right. He's charismatic as hell. And he's just hilarious in that whole scene when they're talking about the tools. He's like, hey, did I show you the, the, the tools that Carol's dad got me? Art says, are you going to build something? And, and Ray goes, yeah, I, I think so. You know, <laughs> it's just so like, it's like this perfect suburban world that they're living in. And it gets turned completely upside down. And of course, we never get into spoilers on this show. But I'm going to work on the assumption that most people listening to this has probably seen The Burbs by now. I will say this. I saw this movie probably two or three years after it came out instantly fell in love with it for the same reasons you did the, the characters you love the characters from feldman's character to bruce stern to the damn clopex mm -hmm. every one of these characters are really interesting characters i was surprised to learn that this movie was a critical 
failure when it was released, that the critics didn't like this movie. And even though I'm somebody who, especially these days, takes Rotten Tomato scores with with a grain of salt. Like, you know what? You know, back then there wasn't as many critics. And when they were all sort of universally saying this is not very good. That's an example, I think, of them getting it wrong. And, you know, every once in a while that's going to happen. And it makes me always wonder where movies that have come out just over the past two or three years that people don't really like or were critically lauded. Are they going to have a resurgency 20, 30 years from now like The Burbs has? Because ask anyone that's seen that movie. It's easily one of their favorite comedies of all time. That entire scene where the neighbors meet the Klopex for the very first time is so rewatchable. And so funny, and I don't want to get too much into it, but there are little things that happen. Even the use of sound effects in that scene are absolutely brilliant. So, Kristen, I have to tell you, for your very first selection on the 20th Century Movie Club, you've knocked it out of the park. That was a great choice. Well, thank you. And I just, and I have to say, as far as the sound effects go, there is a scene where I don't think it's, I think it's impossible to spoil this. It's not a spoiler, I don't think, but there is a scene when Tom Hanks eats the most random appetizer that you could ever possibly imagine. And it is a sardine on a pretzel. And I have to tell you, I've watched that movie so many times that I have literally eaten a sardine on a pretzel because I just, I I wanted to. There was something about the way that they did it that it was like, yes, that looks so terrible, but how bad can it be? And I have to try it for myself. (laughs) And I, yes, I have. And it's terrible. And it's terrible. (laughs) They really should have been Oscar nominated for the sound design, just from that entire scene where he's taking the sardine out of the tin, and it's just sort of shaking in his Mm -hmm. hand, and he puts it on the the pretzel, and then when he eats it, like it's it's I'm I'm gonna lose it right now because that scene is so funny. But and it's 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 really interesting because they're coming over. The neighbors are going over to the Klopex house, and without getting into spoilers here, they think that something nefarious might be going on with the neighbors and with with these new neighbors. And they go over there, but they're still well. Almost all of them are pleasant and polite and are trying to be the good neighbors. And they brought brownies, and there's that great scene mm-hmm. where the brownies fall on the ground. They still give them to him, and uh, and it's just it, that whole scene's great. It, Rumsfeld is, you know, he's just he's he's looking at the painting and he keeps turning it upside down and he starts playing with the wallpaper, which we've all done that. There's oh, a little yeah. tear on the wallpaper and he just keeps pulling up. For my money, that's probably the best scene in the movie. And that's not a knock on the rest of the movie because the rest of the movie is absolutely hilarious. So but- Dana, I have to ask you, did you know that so I had mentioned and I had touched on it was written I mean, it was written and then filmed during the writer's strike. See, okay? I didn't know that. So, no. and, and during a writer's strike, you can't, <laughs> you can't collaborate. It's no. part of the rules. So during that time, a lot of scenes had to be improvised. Yep. And Bruce Dern improvised the scene where he pulled the wallpaper off the wall. <laughs> and I tell you what, I can't even tell you how many times in my big old suburban house that I grew up in have I accidentally pulled wallpaper off the wall. It is like Pandora's box. You Once you start, it is a, it is, you're, now we're in trouble. He's trying to put it back up on the <laughs> wall. Never, not, there's never, nope, you can't fix it. And it's so funny. And that is such a great point about that part. Because it is, it's such a great little tidbit. And, but it was improvised. And I think that's so unique unique and interesting. And I find that to be something that I didn't know when I first saw the movie. I didn't know that the first hundred times sure. I saw it. I, I, I didn't know that until you just told me. Oh, well, so, as, in a, as you get older and you, uh, for me, when I love something, I want to know more about it, you know, just like anybody with anything. And that movie I've loved a long time. And there's been plenty of times I've looked it up and wanted to read something about it. And, you know, I mean, I've eaten a sardine on a pretzel, so I love it that much. And that wallpaper scene is is classic. I love it. I just, I love that that's something that stuck out to you. And another thing too, with the painting that I have to say, which is also one of my favorite parts. And I love that Yes, he turned it around like four or five times. And do you know what's really funny about that? So I, I did touch on the fact that I love Twilight. I love the Twilight Zone. My father and I, and my father is my best friend. And my father and I have watched every episode of the Twilight Zone countless times over together. And in fact, we've done it recently. And in the Twilight Zone, there, there happens to be an episode that that painting is referring to. And that painting is actually a painting of surgery being performed from the perspective of the patient, which I think is so dark and like evil and like, oh my gosh, and so cool. And I love that. I love that when when the doctor front comes in and he, 
he corrects the painting <laughs> and then turns turns it over again. Like I just I just love that because you don't know what perspective it's supposed to be, and that I think is such a unique. Yeah, see, I didn't know that either, and that's yeah. really that was really interesting. So Dana, another really fun fact about the Burbs: the dog that is Walter's dog, which plays kind of a big part in the movie, actually. Yes, and. Her name is Queenie. She is also the same dog from Silence of the Lambs. You're she kidding. is precious, precious. You're from kidding. Silence. I am not kidding. It is the same dog. So that dog is technically like an Oscar winner. So the Burbs, in a way, has an Oscar winning, not just Tom Hanks, but Queenie is also precious. And both of them were, those were both pre-Oscars. Like Tom yep. Hanks didn't win his first Oscar until Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. And and Queenie was going to go ahead and win her first Oscar in 91 with Sounds of the Lambs. And, and we can say that's an Oscar winning dog because that movie, as I've mentioned before, swept the Oscars. So if they would have had a nomination for Best Canine Performance... Queenie would have won that. And let's be honest, Precious did an excellent job. Absolutely. Because how often do you hear people say, Precious, you know, my Precious. Oh, wait, that's a different movie. But still. (laughs) But still. But no, no. So, see, we're old enough that when we hear Precious, we think of the dog from Silence of the Lambs. And other people think of, you know, the Lord of the Rings. But that's okay. Yes. It is okay. And that was, yeah. So, same dog. So, for my first pick of this episode, I wanted to go with a movie that was also released in 1989. And I picked this movie because it is one of the last examples of the 80s action film where the hero is really, for the lack of a better term, indestructible. You got to remember that in 1988, Die Hard came out and that really revolutionized the action film for years to come where you had the everyman put in a, you know, an unbelievable situation and he's got to save the day, but he's very, the reluctant hero, if you will. That's not to say that it didn't change the game over overnight because the following year we got 1989's Roadhouse starring Patrick Swayze. For those who've never seen Roadhouse, first, I'm sorry, I apologize that you've missed this absolute gem of a film. Roadhouse tells the story of Dalton, played by Patrick Swayze. And Dalton is what is known as a cooler. Now, apparently, according to the logic of Roadhouse, because I didn't know what a cooler was until I saw the movie, but apparently when you go to any type of nightclub or, uh, you know, entertainment venue, they have bouncers, but they also have the cooler. And the cooler is sort of the guy that is in charge of the bouncers. And he's the one that makes the call on who goes and who stays. And he, you know, pretty much is in charge of the security. Well, in Roadhouse, Dalton is the best. He's the best in the business. In fact, he has a reputation that stretches nationwide. Everybody knows who Dalton is. And the movie opens up with Dalton at a nightclub in New York City and shenanigans ensue. A fight breaks out. He gets you know, stabbed in the arm, but he's fine. And a nightclub owner from the Midwest comes to Dalton's nightclub and wants to hire him because he has a place called the Double Deuce, which is this, as he describes it, it's the kind of place they sweep the eyeballs off the floor at the end of the night. And he hires Dalton to come clean up his place because he wants to put some real money in it and turn it into a proper nightclub. That's really all you need to know about the movie as far as the plot goes. It is one of the most batshit crazy, so bad it's good type of films. And what's great about it is everyone takes their role so serious. There's not any humor in the movie. And it's just Patrick Swayze. He's just this badass who's just he has the answers to everything and he runs afoul of i love the movies where it's a small town and there's like a a heavy a bad guy who he kind of runs the town and every all decisions go through him and dalton runs afoul of this guy and it becomes sort of the, it just sort of builds this epic showdown at the very end i love this movie even though it's terrible but it's terrible for all the right reasons and i have to ask you Kristen, have you seen roadhouse Oh, Dana, I have not seen Roadhouse. And I can't tell you how many times (laughs) I have had someone tell me how fabulous it is and how much I would love it. Personally, I would love it. And I have never seen it. I want to go home tonight and watch it because I love movies that are terribly bad for all the right reasons. And it's one of these things where when you watch them, like Dalton, like Patrick Swayze is all in on this character. Like at no time do you get the sense that he's not believing that he is Dalton, the world's or the America's greatest bouncer. What's great about it is even when he travels to this small town, everybody knows who he is. 
Like everybody's heard of Dalton and there's sort of this running kind of little running gag where everybody says, I thought you'd be bigger, which kind of plays on the fact that Patrick Swayze is not a very big guy. And all you need to know is this. There's martial arts. There's monster trucks. There's helicopters. There's all kinds of insanity going on. There's gratuitous nudity. It is completely off the wall. It's directed by a guy by the name of Rowdy Harrington. And Rowdy Harrington, I looked at his filmography and he really hasn't done a whole lot. Uh, a couple years later, he did a movie called Gladiator. It's not the Russell Crowe or the Ridley Scott directed, you know, Oscar winning best picture. Right. It's a movie that stars James Marshall and Brian Dennehy. It's about a kid from Chicago. His father's fallen in with the uh, the mob and he's got to go into this underground boxing league to, to make money to pay off his father's debts. And again, not a very good movie, but but incredibly watchable for the same reason. I give Rowdy Harrington some credit because he, he's got a real knack for making bad movies that are just super watchable. So I'm, I'm hoping you'll get an opportunity to watch Roadhouse soon and, and report back to me on that one because I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Well, I can't wait to watch it. And the way that you are describing it is something that sounds right up my alley. And I love movies that bring out something that is maybe unwatchable under most people's I guess, criteria for a movie, the Criterion Collection or what have you. But I want to watch something that's going to be more the common, the relatable. I can probably tell you without even, I have not watched it yet, but I'm excited to because I guarantee you that I can relate those characters just on what you're telling me to people that I probably know in my everyday life of someone that their uh, reputation precedes them. And wow, I thought you'd be bigger. <laughs> like, I love that. And I'm, I'm excited to see it. And I think that that says a lot about people in general that have such a big persona that follows them. And when you meet them, it's like, oh, you're more relatable than I thought. Or, oh, you know, this is different than I thought. And I'm really looking forward to watching it because I happen to love all of those things. Uh, the nudity, the monster trucks, the rowdiness, which I would only imagine roadhouse rowdiness is going to be good. It's another thing I want to touch on about the film is it introduced me to the concept of the house band. Because in this movie, the house band is uh, is the Jeff Healy band. And Jeff Healy did that, had that amazing song called Angel Eyes that came out a few, I mean, like late 80s. Beautiful, beautiful song. Great band. And the house band is at this Midwestern bar, but they know who Dalton is. And Dalton, you know, he's sort of talking to them and he's like, what's this place like? He's like, man, this place is worse than that, you know, that, that spot we did in, up in Kansas City or something like that. And I realized that that's a real thing, house bands. There's these bands that will go and sign on to play at a bar for like a month at a time, you know, and then they travel from Midwestern town to Midwestern town. And I was in Rock Springs, Wyoming, of all places, uh, several years ago. I went to this place called Kill Peppers, and it was just a notch above the double deuce, if you will, as far as... <laughs> quality but they had a house band in there and me being the you know like the, the curious ever curious one when they were in the middle of taking a break from one of their sets i asked the guy i said wow you know you guys are great they just played a lot of you know classic rock and roll tunes and i said i said are you guys from here i said no 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 we're just here for like three weeks and then we're going to lincoln nebraska to play a spot for like four or five weeks and i'm just like wow like that's a thing and i used to think that must be really kind of cool you just travel from small town to small town playing these different small venues so i have a question about the movie yeah um, so is it is the movie from the perspective then of the house band? No, the, the house band they just they, these guys just play a minor role in the film, but they're they're the only band throughout the entire duration of the movie. And it takes place over several weeks. It's not just he goes in there one night and cleans the place up. Yeah, but they're always the band that's playing. So it's always just Jeff Healy music, Jeff, the Jeff Healy band music that's playing. Okay, there. And it, I mean, it's a typical honky tonk. I wouldn't say honky tonk. It was just, you know, it's a blue collar, you know, Midwestern town, you know, farmers, the type of place farmers would hang out and stuff. Like that. But a lot of like ruffians go there as well. A lot of drug dealing and seedy, oh seedy stuff going on. And it, I don't want to spoil it, but. Well, it, I'm it, curious. So who's the hero? Is it Patrick Swayze's character? Oh, yeah, character? by all, by so all he, scenes. He's the one that like the perspective that you're on the winning yeah. team of is yeah, Patrick Swayze. He goes, he's going in there to clean this place up. And he's got a reputation of he's the best in the business. And he gives this great speech where they have like a staff meeting where he talks about the rules, the three rules of being a bouncer. You know, one's always like, be nice, never underestimate your opponent, things like that. And, and always, no matter what, 
take it outside. And he just gives, he's talking to these guys about all the different rules they have to follow. But it's the thing is, it's done so serious. And that's what makes it so absurd at the same time. That's what's beautiful about the movie. So I have to say this, I've never seen Roadhouse. But I have seen Dirty Dancing, and I love that movie. And I just love Patrick Swayze and Dirty Dancing. What girl, and frankly, what guy doesn't love Dirty Dancing for just exactly what it is? But there is a scene in Dirty Dancing, and as you're talking about the the rallying of we need to clean it up and we need to do this, I'm picturing this one scene from that movie when the owner of that hotel is speaking to all of the waitstaff about how you need to treat your customers and the summer's kicking off and whatever he says about like show the ladies a good time but not too good a time and I'm picturing that kind of a speech and it's just funny because Patrick Swayze's in that movie and he rolls in and he is the house I guess dancer it's cool I'm I'm excited to watch it I'm really looking forward to going home and watching it tonight I haven't seen Dirty Dancing in, in several years but if I remember correctly that movie came out in 87 and that was huge for Patrick Swayze's career so Roadhouse came out two years later so he was already like he wasn't like an unknown by that point. People knew who he was. I mean, Ghost, which came out the year after that, put him through the stratosphere. But he's so he's so just cool in well, Roadhouse. I mean, if he has his shirt off in any movie, I'll probably go. Ahead oh, and watch he's it. got more than a shirt <laughs> off in this one. He does the whole martial arts, you know, training thing with just a pair of shorts on. And well, I'm and, excited to check it out. I mean, I love movies that have a good character base. I do. I really so, do. Excellent. All right. What do you have for your second pick of the episode? Well, you know, I wanted to just kind of follow my heart on this whole thing because it's my first time doing anything like a podcast. And I wanted to choose a movie that for me is something that has been moving and touching and an experience that has followed me through my life from when I saw it to where I'm at now. And for my next pick, it is something that is pretty much as opposite of the burbs as you could probably get, but I love it just as much, just for different reasons. And it is A Bronx Tale, 1993. And there's so many things to say about that movie that if you haven't seen it, it is something that is not your typical mob movie. And there are things about it that are more like following a boy growing up to be a man. And you never really get to see him grow up to be a man, but you get to see him go from being around 10 years old to about teenage years under 18. So you see where he's headed in life, the direction that his life is going to take from a boy to becoming a man and the choices that he really has to make and what forms someone to the person that they become. And most mob movies out there, and there's a lot of great ones. I love so many different mob movies. For me, I get a perspective of life that, well, frankly, I don't see that every day. I don't imagine that most people do. So it's always exciting to watch something that takes you away from your day to day. And that's why we watch movies. That's why I watch them is I want to be taken to a place that I don't go every day. So for me, the mob movies are fun, but this one is different. A Bronx Tale takes place in the 60s, and clearly by the title, it takes place in the Bronx. And it feels that way from the moment that movie comes on the screen. I love the way that it starts out with showing you the type of lifestyle that people were going through during that time period. And there was a lot of segregation and differences and between the people that were in the, I guess, the mafia, the gang part of it. And these guys weren't gang people. They were well-dressed, well-spoken. Chaz Palminteri. It is an autobiographical play that he had written and had had the opportunity to sell multiple times and refused and turned it, turned it down and turned it down because he wanted to play the character of Sonny, who is the gangster with, I guess, with a heart of gold, if you will. I mean, he was a lovable, kind, soft-spoken man. And at the end of the day, you relate to him in a way that most, I think, mafia movies, the common person can't relate to as someone that they would want to be friends with. Well, you you shouldn't. I mean, maybe you do. but And if you do, that's (laughs) fine too, I suppose. But the common person isn't going to look at that and say, like, this is someone that could be like a father figure. Robert De Niro... He is the one that directed the movie. And he also said, I see the value in what you're, I see it. I see your vision. And he wanted to be a part of it. And I think that's really great. And I do think that he did a great job with directing it. And you can, you can tell watching the movie that Martin Scorsese was someone that was probably a very big influence. I'm sure that that's someone that he idealized, uh, got a lot of pointers from, and you can see that in the movie, but you also see his own style with it as well. One of the things I really love about the movie is the heart 
that comes with it. That it isn't just your typical gangster film. You're watching a boy become a man. There's a lot of life lessons in that movie that I still think about to this day. There's nothing worse, nothing sadder in life than wasted talent. And that's something that is repeated throughout the movie. There's a few different things, and I won't give anything away, so don't worry. But I do appreciate that the trend of that movie has life lessons that aren't always taught in every movie. And there's a great scene about a first date that if every man in this world doesn't listen to and follow and do, then I don't know, somebody's doing something wrong. Because that is definitely the way it should be done. And at the end of the day, I suppose it's a do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And it's it's just a very beautiful story that takes place in a very tumultuous time. It's a sad and dark time in history when things are very separated and for all the wrong reasons. And it comes down to one thing. And in the movie, they talk about it. Would you rather be feared or loved? And at the end, the choice should always be love. And this movie really paints almost a Romeo and Juliet type story about how love can conquer all and how you can't overcome things because you believe in something and you love something and you don't typically get that from a gangster movie. So, Dana, I'm curious, have you seen A Bronx Tale? Yes, I have. And just a couple things I want to point out, talk to you about that one. You mentioned Robert De Niro, who directed it. And, and by that point, he had been directed by Scorsese a couple of times, Goodfellas, Raging Bull, for example. What I thought was really unique about that movie, and I could, I'll be honest with you, I didn't appreciate it the first time I saw it. And I did see it in the theater when it came out. At that point, I want to say that I was maybe 15 years old and just what didn't appreciate films for what it was. I'd come off of Goodfellas and I'm thinking, all right, we're going to get another Goodfellas. And that's not what it was. It wasn't until subsequent reviewings later on that I really learned to respect this movie. And there's a couple things I always want to point out. One, I love De Niro's character in this one because he is playing really against type. If you look at, you know, other movies that he's been in, you would expect him to sort of be the the, the bad guy, the, the, the antagonist of the film, when he's actually a really good, hardworking man who wants nothing but the best for his son, and he doesn't want his son involved in anything that has to do with the gangster lifestyle. And this is not really getting into spoilers, but there's this great scene where he's offered an opportunity to make a little extra money and he just flat turns it down. To me, that was great. And he never wavers from that position. There's two other little things I want to talk about. Chaz Palminteri is phenomenal in the movie. When he gives the speech about Mickey Mantle, I love that. And of course, there is, you can never forget one of the best, I'm going to keep this really spoiler free, but really vague, one of the best scenes involving a group of bikers that are clearly from out of town. And that's all I'm going to say about that. But there's a great line where he says, now you can't leave. And I'm going to say nothing more than that. The part you brought up about, you know, the first date, I won't spoil what that is, but you're right. That is, that's classic. And Sonny gives him a little advice and he says, you know, if she does this, then you know, she's a keeper basically. And I won't say whether or not she does it. I don't want to spoil it, but that's a great movie. I haven't seen in probably 10 years and I really need to rewatch it. So Excellent selection, Kristen. So I just love that you brought up the biker scene. I, for so many different reasons. I mean, I love that. And that's a great, that is a great scene. And I have to just say, because I'm such a, I pay, I, pay, I like the detail. I love to pay attention to the details. And for years, until I had to look it up, because I thought that one of the bikers for years, I thought was Rob Schneider. Oh. Because it looks just like him. I mean, there is like an un, I mean, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe he's not in the credits. And I rewatched it not that long ago because it is one of my favorites. And I've, I mean, it's probably been a couple years since I've seen it, but I rewatched it not that long ago because I wanted to talk about it because it is one of my classic favorites that I love. I'm like, that's Rob Schneider for sure. I had to look it up. And sure enough, nope. Not Rob Schneider. <laughs> not Rob Schneider. But that's just a great scene. And the part with Mickey Mantle, that line, that is something to really think about in life. And not to, I mean, I don't know that that's a spoiler in the movie, but the line that he, that he says about Mickey Mantle, I am a huge sports fan. Sure. I, I mean, I am a hockey fan through and through, and I love my team. And I love them even if they don't love me back. That being said, it's important to remember the things that love you back. Absolutely. I just want to point out that I went to a Patriots game last year and I had on the field passes and Tom ran right by me. He was no less than four feet away from me. And I was yelling at him. It's like, Tom, Tom, Tom. And he 
just ignored me, but that's okay. I'm sorry you know to I'm sorry to break the news, but he might not love you. Back. He may not love me back, but that was okay. That's all right. I was within arm's length with him, so I that's get okay. It. I get he, it. He loves you back as a fan, and that's something too. But what? Yeah, it is what it is. But uh, <laughs> that's a that's a again great selection. I appreciate the cameo that happens at the end of the film. Oh, you and me both. I appreciate that, and I can't even say who it is, and we won't, and we won't, but. That was a nice touch at the very end of the film, and and I appreciated that. So, so one of the coolest parts about that cameo is that it is a super surprise, but it is meant to be. Yeah. Because how do you have a film like that without, without that him? person in it? Exactly. Yeah. And I love that in the very beginning, which is the most pivotal moment in this boy's life. It is life-changing. It is the moment, if you will. It is the corner that was turned that you can never go back from. There was a life-changing moment that happened. And and it's a true story. So that really happened to Chaz Palminteri. That is a true... St- I mean, that part autobiographical is, you know, I'm sure that there have been some artistic leniencies, liberties, yeah, artistic liberties. However, that really happened. And it was life-changing. But that cameo at the end... He was the man in the car, which okay. I love that little fact. So if you've seen the movie... Maybe that's a reason to rewatch it Absolutely. because that brings the whole thing full circle. And if you haven't seen it, when you watch it at the end, just know that he was in that car. I get goosebumps really just talking about it because I love that fact. And and I didn't learn that until not that long ago. It was okay. a few years ago that I learned that. Okay. So for my second pick of the episode, I was inspired now, to be fair, I've actually done an episode on this movie going way back to 2014. This was back when I would really do the deep dives into the history of films. But given the fact that just a couple days ago, a trailer was released for the fifth movie in this franchise. And it's a franchise that I can't get enough of. But what's interesting is this franchise has so shifted away from the original film that the original film is almost unrecognizable by the time we're getting to this fifth film that's going to come out in September. And the movie that's coming out in September is called Rambo Last Blood. So I'm going to be recommending Rambo First Blood. The no, I'm sorry, that's not correct. It's not even called Rambo First Blood. It's just called First Blood. If you've never seen First Blood, it tells the story of a Vietnam veteran by the name of John Rambo who has returned back to an America that is very different than it is now as far as the type of uh, support that the troops get. In, in America now, veterans get unconditional support and damn well they they damn well deserve it they they absolutely get that that wasn't so much the case in a post-vietnam era there was so much anti-war sentiment that that was being taken out on the veterans that were returning that they were coming back to a very disillusioned america that didn't want anything to do with them and and, and first blood tells the story of rambo who's basically a drifter he, he has no home he's just going from small town to small town and he is passing through a small town in the pacific northwest and he is hassled very much by the town sheriff played by brian dennehy words are exchanged and before you know it rambo is arrested for vagrancy and i get too much into it but obviously most people know that he escapes from the jail where he's been taken. He goes off into the into the mountains and it becomes sort of a cat and mouse game where the sheriff and his men are trying to capture Rambo and things escalate beyond the point of no return. And it turns into a, a, a sort of a, a big fiasco involving the National Guard. And, but what's unique about this is it's very different from the other Rambo movies where he becomes, like I talked about, that 80s unstoppable killing machine. This is a very vulnerable man. He doesn't want any part of what's happening to him. He just wants he just wanted to be left alone and they kept pushing him and kept pushing him to the breaking point where he had no choice but to retaliate back against them and it is a surprisingly subdued movie from a violence point of view it's not the over-the-top ridiculous action you have never run out of bullets type thing that happens with the subsequent rambo films it's a movie that has a hell of a lot of heart it's based off of a book of the same name by author david morales who was inspired to write the book after spending some time with some vietnam veterans and i will just say this if you haven't listened to it go back and listen to my episode on it because the book is vastly different from the movie in the sense that a lot more carnage happens in the book than in the movie, which is normally it's the, it's the opposite. I don't think 
that Rambo was a planned franchise. I think that I think the success of First Blood caught a lot of people off guard and they had no choice but to continue making these movies. And each one subsequently had diminishing returns, not only in the amount of money that they made, but also in the quality of the film. I'm looking forward to Rambo 5, Rambo Last Blood, just because Stallone is 73 years old and still looks great for his age and you know i i'm i'm gonna see this story through to the end so Kristen, have you seen first blood oh dana i really wish i could say yes but i have not okay all right and it's surprising because yeah nope that's another one have you seen any of the rambo movies i have not okay <laughs> no that's really exciting that you haven't seen that movie because that means you get to experience it and, and remember this and this is something I say on almost every episode. This movie was made in the early 1980s. All the stunts, everything you see is real and practical, and it's involving real stuntmen. It's a very interesting film, and it's very exciting at times, and it's got a lot of action at some times, but it also has a ton of heart. And it's, I think when you watch First Blood, you'll be compelled to want to watch Rambo First Blood Part 2, and I think you'll be sorely disappointed by the second film after watching First Blood. It's, it really stands on its own. Well, I do love, like, one of my favorite movies of all time is Apocalypse Now. Sure. And it is. And I just, and I love movies that embody things that we as a country may be misunderstood and are able to paint a picture. My father, who... I will probably mention constantly because he is my best friend. But my father is a Vietnam veteran. And I always make a point to tell anyone that I meet that was in the Vietnam War, welcome home. Yeah. Because they were not welcomed home. And it is a it's a travesty that it wasn't. It's terrible that it wasn't like that for them. But I am looking forward to watching the movie. And I do love Sylvester Stallone. I really... Death Race 2000 is one of my favorites. There you and go. that was his first movie. <laughs> if he's going to drive a car named Frankenstein and still be a badass as Rambo, I want to watch it. So I'm really excited to watch it. And I can't believe of all things... You know, it is it is one of those type of movies that I probably didn't watch because I never had a boyfriend in high school that wanted to watch it. And I just ended up not seeing it. And then here I am, however many years later, not having seen it. So I do want to put that on my list as well. If I was to tell you to watch only one of the films that we've talked about tonight, I'm hesitant to tell you which one, which way to go, because they're very opposite of each other. One is, you know, the Roadhouse, which is just completely off the wall. And the other one is a very good movie. And so it's it's really interesting. I would like to say one thing that I to touch on what you mentioned about the fact that, you know, the Vietnam veterans were not welcome back home. I went to Tropicana Field this past Monday, Memorial Day, to watch a baseball game. There was a big line to get in because they hadn't opened the gates yet. And there was a, a number of gentlemen that had Vietnam veteran hats on them. As the doors opened, everyone in the crowd sort of just parted the ways and said, you gentlemen, go first. I know it's 40 five plus years later, but it's a little comforting to know now that people are recognizing what they had to go through and what they did. And I just think, I mean, that was to me, I almost, I, I, my eyes, I started tearing up when I saw that at the baseball game this past Monday. So. Right. No, I mean, absolutely. And yeah, you know, it's a, it's something that is important to the other day. I thanked someone for their service and they thanked me for their support. And I think that was a beautiful thing. It was a nice exchange. And so it's important to remember that more than anything, more than you supporting somebody, and it's important to support each other. Yeah. So I think that as a whatever, I mean, we're, we're here to support each other and let's make it as easy as we can for each other. Absolutely. And people deserve respect where respect is deserved. But that being said... I'm excited to watch Rambo because <laughs> I love Sylvester Stallone. And is that the one where he wears like the red bandana and he ties it back all tight? Well, that would be Rambo First Blood Part oh, Two. Okay, well, and I, I think he, I think he catches a bandana in Part Three, and I, you know, I'm pretty sure he wears a bandana in, in, in the fourth one as well. Now that I think about it, different color bit. So there's no bandana in the first one. No, no, but well, he does at one point because he's it's it takes place in the winter time. Well, at least the mountains where there's still snow on the ground, and he does find some sack that he fashions into a into a like a, a coat that he wears and ties and twine around. That's the it. beginning. And that, yeah, I'm telling you, but that, but I will. Well, you know what? I'm not going to say anything. We got to watch. I got to watch. Yeah, you got to watch it. All right. So what is your third pick of the episode? Okay, Dana, for my third pick for this episode, I'm going to go with another one of my just all time favorite feel good movies. And it stars one of my favorite actors, 
because he is so versatile in his comedic abilities and also him being able to be serious. And that is Bill Murray, who I love. And he is from just north of my hometown in Chicago. And that is What About Bob? And What About Bob is a movie that is Richard Dreyfus, Bill Murray, And Richard Dreyfuss plays the psychiatrist that is so full of himself that in the very beginning recommends a book to his brand new client looking over at a bookshelf that is filled with his own book. And then, oh, let me see. Where is this? Oh, here it is. (laughs) (laughs) Pulls it off the shelf, tells him, this is what you need to read to help you. And it's called Baby Steps. And if I had, I don't know. I mean, I say baby step. Let's baby step. Baby step to the car. Baby steps down the stairs. Baby step to... It's just, that's his book. The best part about that scene to me is that he is so full of himself that he makes a note to his secretary to be sure and charge him for the book that he just (laughs) gave him. And I'm pretty sure he charged him for the session as well. So Bill Murray plays the most perfect neurotic, you wouldn't say mental patient, but he plays the perfect neurotic person that is afraid of germs. He's afraid of contact with people. It's like the movie As Good As It Gets with Jack Nicholson, where he's afraid to step on the cracks, but way more funny in the sense that Bill Murray takes that character to a whole nother level. And he's lovable right off the bat, because it's Bill Murray. But he does have this childlike way of just making you realize that he is completely crazy, but you love him because he's almost like a child. And the movie takes place in New York City, and he goes to visit Dr. Leo Marvin, and it's their first appointment, and he clearly needs a lot of help. (laughs) Well, it's a holiday weekend and they're going out of town. Richard Dreyfus is going out of town on vacation with his family and Bill Murray feels this connection right off the bat and then decides to basically stalk him and track him down to his vacation home, which is the movie and the shenanigans that go down. And there are just some parts of that movie that for me are so funny and so uniquely funny. The way that Bill Murray brings a likable character to someone that you would not normally like. It's almost like anybody at any point, given the right circumstances, could feel a little bit crazy in their own right. And it's kind of funny to see that transition from someone like Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfuss, who are two completely different character types. They would never be able to play the same role. And they do such a great job of contrasting each other in this movie. There is this one part in the movie that I just have to tell you that I say probably every time I go on a boat. And (laughs) there is this part where he is just terrified of being on a boat. He's trying to let loose and have some fun. And in order to do that, he has to literally be tied down to the bow of the boat and is so excited and happy, but completely strapped down, covered in life vests and ties. And I'm sailing. (laughs) And it's just my favorite. And then there's just some cute little lines that I have one of my best friends, um, Sarah, her and I talk about that movie all the time. It's just something that we've watched and watched and watched together because it's a feel-good movie when you can relate to somebody that maybe isn't feeling so good and you have this feel-good movie and, you know, it's a poodle, a doodle, a noodle. (laughs) But I love that movie and it just makes me laugh so hard every time I see it. Dana, have you ever seen What About Bob? I have. It's been quite a while, but I have fond memories of the film. And I know we don't want to get too much into spoilers, but what I really like about the film is both characters, Bill Murray's character and Richard Dreyfuss' character, by the end of the movie, they have both transformed into completely different people. And there's a particular scene, Richard Dreyfuss' character, Dr. Leo Marvin, he's very proud of this book that he's written. And he's basically getting ready to go on this, almost like a book tour. And and is it Good Morning America? Yes. Or, yeah, it's, it's, so Good Morning America <laughs> is coming to his house to interview him about his book, Baby Steps. And I don't want to get too much into that whole scene, but it's just fantastic how that interview is ends up being conducted. Oh, and it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's absolutely hilarious. And it's, it, it's really one of the big payoffs of the film. I haven't seen it in a long time. Those parts stick out to me. The whole sailing part sticks out to me. But I have to I have to say that I need to rewatch the movie because I remember really enjoying it when I saw it. And I saw it when I was young. Like I saw it probably the year it came out. So it's been 20 something years since I've seen the film. So that's a great recommendation. I can't wait to rewatch that film. Well, I love that you want to rewatch it because I I really just think that that is one of those movies that is if you want to talk about a, a character switching roles, that movie is the 
most hilarious way to watch it transpire. And I, I love it. I mean, it's one of my all-time favorites. Absolutely. It's one of those movies that I will rewatch just for the sake of sometimes having it on and being able to laugh it apart. Anyone that's a true lover of movies probably has a movie like that that you can just put on in the background and maybe you're trying to go to sleep or maybe you're playing on your phone or you're doing something and it's just on and that movie will make me laugh every time. So for the final pick of the episode, I was working on a theme of movies that were the idea, like I always want to have sometimes have a theme with the, with the three selections that I make. One episode I did strictly 1980s horror. The theme I was working on was movies that were critically lambasted, but have gone on to, to experience, you know, a resurgence and people look back on them fondly. Of course, First Blood completely takes that theme and throws it out the window, but two out of three ain't bad from the inception of this series, The 20th Century Movie Club, I've been wanting to recommend this film. And it's one that I remember when it came out in 1986 that people hated it. Critics hated it. And I watched it with my friends and we couldn't get enough of it. And I wondered if it was going to be one of those nostalgia situations where I remember it as a kid really liking it. And then as, you know, in my, I'm in my 40s now, now I need to rewatch it through adult eyes. And I found it funnier now than when I watched it as a kid. And I'm talking about the 1986 John Landis directed film, Three Amigos. So if you've never seen the movie, the basic plot of the film is that Martin Short, Chevy Chase, and Steve Martin play silent film stars. And they star in a series of movies called The Three Amigos, where the characters ride into town, they stop the bad guys, and they save the day, and they're rewarded handsomely for their deeds, and they ride off to, to rescue another town. Well, there's a small town in Mexico called Santa Poco, where they're really experiencing the real thing. And a couple of the villagers see one of these silent movies and believe that The Three Amigos are they're real, that they don't realize that they're fictitious characters. So through a series of misinformation, the villagers attempt to hire the three amigos who think they're being hired to star in a silent film in Mexico, only to find out that the reality is that they're, they really need, to, it doesn't matter what the plot of the film is. Here's what you need to know. Chevy Chase, Martin Short, and Steve Martin are unbelievably funny in the film. And the movie has a lot of slapstick humor, but it also has a lot of really subtle stuff, like really subtle humor that I, I didn't pick up on until I was an adult, until I watched this only a couple of weeks ago. Look, is the movie ridiculous in some parts? Absolutely. But there are the, the laughs outweigh the ridiculousness, in my opinion. I mean, there's a scene, I can't, I'm just going to start laughing because there, there's a scene where the bad guy, you know, it's his birthday and the men chip in to buy him a present and it's a sweater. And they're in the middle of Mexico. They're in the middle of the Mexican desert. It's like little things like this. He's like, it's a sweater, you know, like, 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 but I just think the movie is, is charming. It's fun. It's PG. It's a movie that the whole family can watch. And it has a lot of really good lines in it. I mean, there's a scene when they're in, I, no, I'm not going to spoil it. I don't want to spoil any of the jokes. The scene where he says, do you have anything besides Mexican food when they're at the, <laughs> when they're right at the village? Uh, so, I, I listen, the bottom line is, I think everybody, if you haven't seen this movie, you should definitely check it out. It was, I looked on, I looked at reviews, like the critics, they hated this movie. They hated, it. they loathed it. And there's probably some people out there listening right now going, really, Dana, you're recommending The Three Amigos? <laughs> but it's such an innocent, fun, good time. So, so Kristen, have you seen The Three Amigos? Oh, Dana. Yes, I have. And I'm so grateful that you are recommending something so goofy because I happen to love the goofy movies. And I know that it's not for everyone. And that's okay. That's why they make a bunch of different kinds of movies. You know, it's a beautiful thing. But for me, I love The Three Amigos. It's been, it has been a long time since I've seen it. And you know, it's one of those movies that is funny and it is just an escape. And to be able to sit down and watch something and just laugh because it's stupid. I like that. I really do. And I think that it is a excellent recommendation. And if someone hasn't seen it and they appreciate the kind of humor that can just take you away sometimes to a place that is not reality for, for most people, I hope. <laughs> but it is something that is hilarious. And it has been a long time. And I would like to rewatch it before commenting too much. But I will say that I know that the combination for me of Chevy Chase and Martin Short and Steve Martin together in a movie, riding around the whole time in costume, no less, which is the most quintessential, like the sombreros that you see hanging up at every Mexican restaurant that you go to in the full on like sequined uniforms. They're on horseback 
in these uniforms and they very rarely get off of the horses. I mean, they do, but they're never out of their uniforms yep. pretty much. Never. And it is the that's the for me the best part of the movie is that they really never break character for them trying to just get through whatever situation they're in and they're going to act their way through it because at the end of the day you fake it till you make it and they tried so hard to just get through their situation and it's a great movie it's been a long time since I've seen it and I'm excited to rewatch that one too because gosh that is a good one and with a character base like that how do you not just laugh absolutely and there's just again without getting into too much into spoilers there's a great scene when they figure out that it's not a film and that it's real and i won't spoil any more than that but it's just hilarious the reactions when they figure out that they're like oh shit this is real (laughs) and it's just it's just hilarious so i hope everyone will check that out so now what we like to do at the end of every episode is we want to give the listeners an opportunity to watch the movies that we talked about so we're just i'm just going to go through the list we kristen and i wrote down where they're all available i'm just going to burn through this real quick. So Kristen's first pick, The Burbs, is available to stream uh, on Amazon Prime, Hulu, and Epics, and it's available to rent across all known renting VOD platforms. Roadhouse is available to stream on Amazon Prime and the Stars app, and uh, again, available to rent across all VOD platforms. Bronx Tale is a little less uh, available. You said you were able to buy it on Amazon Prime. It says here that's only available to rent on the Vudu app, but you purchased it on Amazon Prime. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. First Blood is a, just available. It's not streaming anywhere. It's just available to rent across all VOD apps. What About Bob is available to stream on the Cinemax Go app, and it's available to rent across all VOD platforms. And The Three Amigos is available to rent across all VOD platforms. All right, Kristen, I cannot begin to thank you for coming on the show. But before we wrap this up, uh, if people want to follow you on social media... Oh, do you think this internet thing is here to stay? Yeah. No, I don't really use social media much. Fair enough. I talked to my grandmother on Facebook and uh, yeah. You think it's here to stay, though, right? I do. I, I feel. I feel like the infrastructure is in place that that we're going to be talking about the internet at least for the next couple of years. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, uh, it's at Dana Buckler Show. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Dana Buckler. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it's at the Dana Buckler Show. If you want to email me with questions or comments, you can email me at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. So, Kristen, thank you for coming on the show. This Dana. was a lot of fun. Dana, thank you so much for having me. It has been so much fun. I just, I love talking about movies with someone that loves talking about movies. So it's been a joy. Excellent. And this will not be the last time you're on here. So I look forward to your return sooner than later. Absolutely. Excellent. My my, pleasure. My name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening.